Today, we're going to talk about back to school. Would you agree that education is probably one of the most important things in our society, let alone for our kids? Well, today we're going to talk about education in depth, and we're going to talk with, I believe, one of my heroes in education, and that's Kaylin Ford. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense, and innovation. It's urban. It's rural. It's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. So my guest today is Kaylin Ford, and she is the founder of Canada's first classical school in our country, both that has campuses in Edmonton and Calgary. And we're going to talk about uh, all the issues related to education, and particularly with you as parents as our children head back to school. So welcome, Kaylin Ford. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for having me. So Kaylin, you've got uh, quite a background in terms of um, law, uh, human rights, uh, also in the political realm, and uh, of course, in education and history. And Kaylin, I'm also fascinated that as a parent, you decided to start up a school. Why did you start up um, Canada's first classical school? Uh, well, first, I should I should qualify that first um, tuition free classical school. There are, there are a small number of um, often parochial or private classical schools elsewhere in the country. So, but ours is the first um, sort of non sectarian or non denominational and public tuition free classical charter school um, in the country. So, um, just a, a little qualifier there. But there were several reasons why I wanted to undertake this. One is, as you mentioned, I'm a parent of young children. And as I was surveying the options for their education, um, I felt as a lot of parents do that I, I just couldn't entirely trust what they would have been receiving in their regular public schools. Um, and even a lot of private schools, while they may sometimes be a little bit behind the curve in adopting some of the worst pedagogical and, and philosophical trends, they're not necessarily impervious to them. Um, and so, uh, so part of it just came out of being a parent of young children and wanting to make sure that they received a good education. And, uh, part of it is I like living in a free society. Um, I like enjoying a society in which people can, um, sort of adjudicate moral disputes in a coherent way, um, where people care about what's true, where they possess the kind of character and the habits and the virtues that enable us to continue living in a free society. And education is the domain in which um, citizens are formed. And to put it a little more seriously, it's the domain in which souls are formed. Um, and I also care that um, I, I hope that people um, have the means to live good and meaningful lives, uh, wow. that they have an ability to connect with a tradition and sort of be part of the great conversation that spans history, and that they can also sort of look toward the transcendent and, and have the, the means of apprehending the divine, whatever that may be uh, for that in that you know, person's faith tradition or, or for them individually. Um, and th I had another experience, I think, that impelled me to undertake this, which maybe we can get into, but that related to my ill-fated run for office. Mm -hmm. Well, I, it's a fascinating summary because you're really challenging us to think that education isn't just simply about the ABCs. It's, it's profoundly about values. You even mention um, the spiritual realm, which is, 
you really don't hear very often within education circles, do you? No. And, you know, if I were to try to diagnose some of the problems afflicting the education system, um, one of them that I would identify is that education has been overtaken by a utilitarian impulse. And I should say there's two different utilitarian impulses. Mm-hmm. On the left, sort of starting with education reformers like John Dewey in the early 20th century, um, this was a utilitarianism that was aimed at transforming society. So education was no longer about uplifting and cultivating the individual child. Um, it was about using education as a vehicle for social transformation. Um, and then there's a- another kind of utilitarian impulse that sadly, I think some people on the right cleave to because they're because they don't like this ideological content in education. Mm-hmm. So they say, let's strip it down. Let's remove the normative content, the sort of values, mm-hmm. and let's just make it careerist. Let's provide people with the skills they need to be mm-hmm. effective in the workforce. And that's a very impoverished view of the human person. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the, the uh, uh, favorite aphorism of mine comes from Confucius, who said in four characters, he said, which means an educated person or a moral person is not a tool. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not, education is not about making you narrowly useful so that you can serve some mm-hmm. specific function. Um, it is a good in itself. And this is also the, the understanding of what a liberal arts education means as opposed to what's called a servile education. Mm-hmm. Um, a servile education sounds pejorative. It's not necessarily pejorative, but um, it is in service of some other end. Right. So acquiring a skill so you can do something else. Whereas so this, is, this is fascinating because right off the top, you've, you've really summarized a profound understanding of what education is really all about. It's about the whole person. It's not just simply about getting a job or some ideological end or like, like how, to, how to build an ideal society, but it's profoundly about the whole person. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, and I think it's, it is a, it should be an emancipatory undertaking. So it should be about um, freeing a person but freedom in a true sense. And I think that's another sort of rabbit hole we could go down right. is um, what what do we mean by freedom and what does that look like? And and I think a lot of the, the problems that are afflicting progressive education is that they have an inverted understanding of what freedom means, what it's mm-hmm. for and how it's achieved. So okay. we have genuine freedom for the individual. So, so this is a great introduction and we're gonna dive down these so-called rabbit holes uh, in a big way in a moment, but um, I, I wanted to also pick up some of the threads of your own story, Kaylin, because it's really an interesting story. And that's why I described earlier you being a, a, a hero in my book, my book in terms of education. And I mean that sincerely. So if you had to reflect back on your own story, I don't know when it was exactly. Was it 2000 or so, 2002, when you decided, when was that seminal moment, in other words, when in your own mind and your heart, you said, look, I'm going to start a school. What, can you tell us more about that? <laughs> well, you say 2002. That's interesting. That was a long time ago, but that probably was the time that I first thought that I wanted to to get into education. And partly that's because of my own educational background and sort of struggles in the conventional uh, public schooling system. But I think the idea percolated for a long time. Um, I'd say around 2000. 16, 17, I became very concerned with this question. And partly that's because I had spent a lot of my life um, confronting in various ways and trying to understand the nature of totalitarianism. 
Mm. Um, so my background was in, I studied um, 20th century history, a focus on, on Chinese history and the communist revolution mm-hmm. um, and other totalitarian systems and then international human rights law and comparative politics. And I was very troubled by this question of how do people allow their societies to descend into this kind of madness, mm-hmm. um, this kind of spiritual and intellectual madness and um, started noticing, I would say, probably about 10 years ago now, that a lot of those things that I associated with totalitarianism, I was seeing more and more in our own society. And I'd say I started noticing it on college campuses, um, this uh, sort of aversion to truth or not treating truth as the criterion by which to evaluate arguments, but rather Mm -hmm. treating whether or not something was um, ideologically kosher, according to a new and emergent Mm -hmm. set of norms that people were trying to enforce. So I got very worried about that. And um, I was thinking about, well, what can we do to try to arrest that trend? How can we at least slow it down? And um, one of the answers is, well, in education, you can try to um, educate people so that they're firmly rooted in what's real, um, so that they approach reality with a sense of humility and gratitude rather than kind of resentment and hubris. and try to make sure that they actually know things and sort of have the criterion by which to assess whether something is right or wrong, just or unjust, true or false. Um, so, uh, so I'd say that that's, that's where a lot of the, the impetus started. Um, and that's also why I decided to run for office, hoping that um, if I could be in a position to shape the education system for more people, that that would be a more effective way to do it. Okay, so this is fascinating. So part of your studies, uh, like my own, was the study of totalitarian regimes, um, including Mao's China, where how many people died again for uh, the chairman's uh, desire to implement the new society? Well over 100 million. Yeah, I th- I'd say 80 to 100 million would be a reasonable estimate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you saw the monuments in China as well to, to just the incredible loss of life. And that's just the tip of the iceberg when you think of it. So you were studying these totalitarian regimes and you decided in some measure, look, I, uh, education is really critical. And, you, and, and you're saying that you saw somewhat similar things in our beloved country called Canada. Are you surely you can't be saying that we're like Mao's China? Well, no, of course not. And, um, you know, the the astute critics of totalitarianism from, for example, the former Soviet Union and elsewhere, mm-hmm. um, always observed that the proto-totalitarianism in the West is in some ways almost more pernicious because of its subtlety, because mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily manifest as, you know, a sort of the midnight knock at the door and you're hauled off to the gulag or something. Right. The overt tools of coercive control are not as much in evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, it is no less totalizing. And um, a lot of the symptoms of totalitarianism, I would say, well, one, a loss of a coherent moral vocabulary, um, a loss of transcendent standards by which to judge right and wrong and true and false. Um, This is one of the elements that uh, people like Joseph Pieper have identified, Eric Mm -hmm. Boglin. When you lose the idea that there is a transcendent source of being or a source of moral authority to which we're all subject, standard against which power can be judged. If you lose that, then all you have is power. Wow. And it's, it's just a force of wills. And, um, you know, the leader of a totalitarian system can then decide 
they decide what's true and what's false and what's just and unjust. Mm -hmm. And if you lose the vocabulary to critique that, you're kind of screwed. Wow. So, um, I mean, I can I can go on, but that's that's one of the main yeah. things that I think relates to education. But, but Kaylin, it, it's a profound insight because if you see that kind of view with all those kinds of basic standards, or uh, you, you, it has huge implications on how you view people then, how you view children, doesn't it? You see them as tools to a larger end. Is that right? Well, absolutely. Uh, and that relates to what is the ultimate goal of so many totalitarian ideologies, which is um let me i'll step back one step here and i'll i'll invoke more eric Vogelin because i i think he's just extremely useful for understanding this way mm -hmm. of viewing the world a classical view of the world let's say a sort of classical philosophical view is that reality exists um it's good mm -hmm. uh, it is governed by certain laws we are part of that creation so we are equally governed by these laws Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, nature imposes certain limitations on us. And our task is to try to apprehend what's true. Um, we can't apprehend it fully. We can never achieve total knowledge of reality, but it is nonetheless intelligible through human mm -hmm. reason and intuition. So we should try to apprehend what's true and what's good and what, what are these laws and thereby attune our souls to it. So try to live in harmony with reality, with, with nature. And the view of sort of a lot of ideological movements, including but not limited to totalitarian tending ideological movements, is to say that truth is not good. And um, the order of being is not something we should try to live in harmony with. It's wrong, it's corrupt, it needs to be overthrown and remade. And us through our sort of knowledge, through our ability to try to control reality through the application of sort of techne, we can bring it under our dominion and remake mm -hmm. it better so that we can extricate suffering from the world. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I think this is, this is, I think is a very useful litmus test. Do you believe reality is good? Is it something we should try to apprehend and venerate and, and align ourselves with, or should we try through force of will to remake reality? And I think the progressive education reformers very much are in the camp that truth is not necessarily good. Um, and uh, it may not even exist as an objective fact. And we should just remake reality according to our kind of utopian designs so that everyone is equal and, um, uh, and there's no more pain and no iniquity in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So these are very profoundly different worldviews then that people maybe not be aware of. It's, it's hard to believe that this is almost like a, an ideological war of worldviews in education. Is that a fair comment? <laughs> I, I think that's a fair comment. Um, absolutely. And lots of people who are influenced by that latter view that I identified, they don't necessarily know they are. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't think that they would necessarily say, yes, I hate reality and yeah. I'm in revolt against it. Mm -hmm. um, but they may have kind of unwittingly imbibed these assumptions mm -hmm. uh, throughout the course of their lives that, you know, that, yeah, we should, mm -hmm. we should try to make the world better. Right. We should improve on these designs. So I did want to turn to the founding of the school because it, it's really kind of a really powerful action that you undertook. Um, so can you tell us more about what you mean by um, classical education? And we do want to uh, show a little bit of an overview uh, of the school as well. So what, what, why, why classical education? Well, it goes back to that distinction I was identifying earlier that um, throughout for I think the last, let's say 2000, maybe 2,500 years, 
the classical education tradition that we recognize in the West sort of originates with the school of Athens from mm-hmm. Socrates and Plato and Aristotle on down and was kind of refined and codified in the Middle Ages in Europe um, and uh, sort of identified with the seven uh, classical liberal arts, which are grammar, logic or dialectic, rhetoric, as well as uh, uh, basically sort of the maths and sciences. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, arithmetic, uh, geometry, astronomy and music. Uh, music being sort of the study of ratios and harmonies. So, um, but in the East, a similar tradition developed as well. And one of the commonalities between the classical education traditions is in their view of the cosmos and man's role in it. And so I, if I, I attempted once to distill what what are these basic understandings about the role of man in, the, in relation to the cosmos? And it's as I described earlier. So, you know, I, I say imperfectly, my criteria would be Truth exists. It is good. We are part of it. It is apprehensible, um, even if not fully graspable, uh, through reason, through um, through intuition, as sort of Aristotle talked about. That the first principles can only be intuited, but the rest can be inferred through reason, mm-hmm. um, and that we should try to live in accord with it, live harmoniously with it. That our societies are going to be more flourishing if they align with what is natural to us. Um, if they align with natural laws, with principles of justice. Um, and and that started to really change. The, I think the first beginnings of that started to change in kind of the late 19th century and then through the 20th century. And now we have an entirely different set of axioms that has taken hold that you know denies that truth exists objectively or is real, denies that it's intelligible to us, um, or if it is real, it's it can be changed and overcome by man because we are not part of this creation. Um, and, and that it's basically something to be viewed with some hostility and, and, um, and contempt. And so that's when, when I think about classical education, I actually think in terms of those principles, what is the basic anthropology? What are the kind of core metaphysical assumptions and, um, and what are the ends that we're driving toward? And um, for me as the founder of a classical program. Um, it's not a religious program, but that doesn't mean that we're disinterested in questions of mm-hmm. ultimate concern. And mm-hmm. so for me, I, I want students to be educated in a way that they're rooted in a tradition that they're able to, um, to sort of draw nourishment from the past and so that they can reach toward what is higher. And, um, so, that they, they they have an openness to the idea of transcendence and they're able to not, you know, they're not, they're people who are not going to be easily led because mm-hmm. they have the roots firmly planted in reality um, and are able to sort of apprehend an ultimate, ultimate truth as well. So um, yeah, I think that's, <laughs> is, that, is that a reasonable no, summary? No, that's great, Kaylin. It's a great uh, summary. So on that note, let's look to the uh, clip about the uh, schools. We understand that our students are not just future workers, their future friends, neighbors, spouses, parents, and citizens. They are bearers of divine souls which thirst after knowledge of what is true, good, and enduring. Our mission is to help them grow in virtue and in wisdom so that they may live well and with purpose. Wow, what a lovely video. And you can see it uh, online, of course, at the website. Where would they find that, Kayla? Uh, Well, you can find that at classicalacademy.ca. And you have campuses uh, where and, and how are things going? 
Right. So we opened our first school uh, this past uh, last August, August 2022, a small elementary school that you saw in that clip there with about 300 students. Um, and demand for our program has grown very substantially through word of mouth. So uh, I think we currently have about 1,200 students hoping to enroll for next year in Calgary. Pardon me. You said you have 1,200 students. Uh, yeah, I mean, we can't enroll all of them, but that's that's our current enrollment demand in Calgary. Wow. Uh, so we're opening another campus that will be uh, kindergarten through grade eight, and we'll continue offering additional grades each year to, so that we eventually have a full K through 12 program. And we're also opening our first school in Edmonton as a K through seven uh, this coming August. So we'll have three campuses this year and about 900 students. And are you, wow, that's incredible. I, I think people would be shocked to realize that uh, in such a relative short period of time, you're at that kind of enrollment. So what what explains the demand here? That's, that's really amazing. Well, I think a lot of it is, um, as I said, this is largely driven by word of mouth. And one of the most common experiences that parents relay is that if you're a parent, you probably know the experience of your kids come home from school and you ask, what did you learn today? Mm -hmm. um, and I always used to ask my kids and friends' kids, what are you learning in history? Because I love history. Mm -hmm. And um, the typical answer is nothing, or I don't know, or I don't remember. Right. And the almost universal experience that parents at our school have reported is their kids home, come home from school and are like bursting with information about, you know, like, ancient Assyria or old kingdom of Egypt mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. um, you know, the Knights of the middle ages there, or the, you know, the black death as my daughter recently did when she came home from school. Um, and, and this is, this is incredibly exciting to them. So I think from a parent perspective, something like that is so transformative and so different from what they're accustomed to. Wow. Uh, and that's drawn a lot of parents to us. I, I think a lot of it though, is that many parents like me, didn't feel that they could trust what their children were learning in their regular schools. Hmm. I've heard from parents that, um, that their kids are on laptops or Chromebooks or iPads as a default. That is the standard operating procedure in their classes is to be on screens. Hmm. I think parents are understandably very upset about that. I mean, I, I think it's, um, almost tantamount to child abuse, if you understand what this is doing to children's capacity to concentrate, well, to reflect. Wait a sec, Kaylin, I'm, and I'm saying this a little bit tongue in cheek, surely children need to know technology. So our, I mean, I know that technology has infected the classroom top to bottom now. You mean, surely you're not against technology, are you? We're not entirely against technology. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it has a place. There's sometimes when technological aids can be useful to achieve educational mm -hmm. ends, but no, kids get enough screen time and they're not learning to be technology makers. Like they're not understanding programming by sort right. of scrolling mindlessly on a screen or playing games. That's not enhancing any kind of useful literacy, even if you believe that that's a category that we should be concerned about. Mm -hmm. I'm much more concerned about um, whether children have a capacity to concentrate, to think deeply, to form their own thoughts, mm -hmm. to be still in their own souls, um, and that they're not just sort of purely reactive beings who rely on external stimuli uh, constantly to distract them from their own thoughts. Exactly. So you don't you don't have you don't allow uh, smartphones in the classroom, no. is that right? No. And you know, gosh, this is this is tragic because we had teachers coming even from other elementary schools. So kindergarten through grade six is elementary in Alberta. 
And even teachers from other elementary schools noted the difference at our school that during recess, they said, it's amazing. Kids here actually play with each other. Wow. (laughs) Well, because at their previous schools, even in elementary, at least the Mm -hmm. upper elementary kids would spend their recesses glued to screens. Isn't that sad? And so it's actually a kind of recovery of innocence that Mm -hmm. there's no, there's no smartphones. Um, We're very serious about that. I think one or two kids tried testing if we were serious and quickly learned that we were when we took their phones away for extended periods of time. Wow. Uh, And they never tried it again. But um, so the kids can actually play with each other, Mm -hmm. which is beautiful. Isn't that great? You know, it reminds me of um, so many insights, but one of them was a um, uh, quote, a great uh, tech leader. Um, when asked, do you allow your children to have smartphones? Uh, he said, no, absolutely not. I, I want them to think. And I think that was, I'm paraphrasing uh, the late uh, Stephen Jobs of all things. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, it's very true. And I, I'm sure most viewers feel this in themselves since the advent of smartphones, of, yeah. you know, Google, where we've grown accustomed to this kind of instant gratification. Mm-hmm. Um and it does erode your capacity to concentrate, to read a whole text, right? right? To just sort of sit for four hours and mm-hmm. read a book. Well, um, and again, be present for each other as yeah. human beings and relate to each other is really a profound insight. How can you live the quote good life if you can't really relate to each other in the here and now? Yeah. Well, and and more importantly, and I'll bring this back to my statement about maintaining that openness to transcendence. I think there are a few core ways that human beings can can do that, can experience the divine, right? Mm-hmm. One of them is like you see the sort of the vault of heaven and the night stars, but we almost never get to do that anymore because we've surrounded ourselves with artificial light. Mm-hmm. Another is sort of experience of sublime beauty in other ways. And again, our modern world does not have that many. We mm-hmm. don't have great Gothic cathedrals or... Um, I think, you know, experiences of profound suffering and, and the, you know, the fact of mortality can focus our mind on these questions, but we have so effectively relegated mortality and suffering to the margins of our consciousness through mm-hmm. both medical and kind of social technologies that make us not have to look at it. Exactly. So what's left? And I think one of the few things that is left, one of the few areas where any of us, no matter how ugly our surroundings, no matter how comfortable our lives, we can still have a a way of accessing the divine as long as we have silence and a capacity for sort of still um, sort of receptive, contemplative states of mind. Wow. And if you drown that out, then then you're lost. You're lost to this idea that there is something higher in the world. So um, to put it very seriously, I think that's why I think that that is important. This capacity for stillness, for quiet, receptive states of being. Wow, what a great insight! So, Kaylin, what would you say were your biggest challenges moving these schools forward? Um, it's hard to imagine, um, you know, that that kind of growth the last few years. What what can you tell us more about that story of of building a school? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I could tell lots of stories about the nightmare that is acquiring capital and facilities as a charter school. Um, the big school boards tend to have a, a near monopoly on facilities. And um, if they are hostile to charter schools uh, and they're not willing to give up even their empty buildings, uh, that's very hard. And, and just to uh, clarify, I should explain that 
what are charter schools? Like you're in the so province of Alberta. They have this unique system uh, in Canada, I believe, uh, of, of charter schools. So what is a charter school? So charter schools are publicly funded, tuition-free schools. Uh, they teach the Alberta curriculum or programs of study. Um, you know, we're subject to the same reporting requirements, uh, publicly accountable for academic performance and fiscal management and all of that. Mm-hmm. So the thing that's really different about charters as opposed to the regular sort of public schools is that we are not governed by these large district boards. We have our own board of directors that is autonomous, that reports directly to the Ministry of Education. Um, and uh, we have a distinct philosophical or pedagogical approach. Mm-hmm. So we still teach to the Alberta curriculum, but we, we approach it very differently and we have kind of enhanced programs of study. So the big difference is that there's sort of, there's a, just a degree of autonomy there, but it's still, it's tuition free. Mm-hmm. It's open to any student who wants to access it, provided we have space. Um, and, uh, but yes, accessing facilities is very challenging for charter schools. Um, we're funded per pupil, but don't necessarily get funding for capital. Um, so we were very fortunate in our first year that the local Catholic school board had a school that uh, was not being occupied by students and uh, they've been great partners. Um, but uh, for this coming year, uh, we're, some of our schools are gonna be located in more unconventional <laughs> buildings that, uh, that we're kind of retrofitting to make into what you would imagine a school would be like. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's exciting. Um, so you are, uh, moving along uh, in terms of the school, do you think that that has the potential to have many more locations beyond what you're you're at now in Edmonton and Calgary? Yeah, that's our, that's our, certainly our goal. Um, there's tremendous demand for this. And I think that as we continue to grow, again, all of this growth, this is 400% enrollment demand in excess of our capacity. Um, all of that is word of mouth. Um, and I think that that will continue as, as we have more students and more families who are in the system. Um, so, uh, that is our goal. We'd, we'd like to grow as much as we can while still maintaining the culture of the school, the, the sense of mission mm-hmm. and making sure that we have teachers who are also sort of fully aligned with what it is that we're offering, um, mm-hmm. and, and who are qualified to deliver that kind of classical education program. That's amazing. You know, it's interesting uh, at, at Frontier, we've certainly got an amazing group of fellows, senior fellows that have done a lot of work in education, including some that were uh, instrumental in establishing charter schools in Alberta years ago. But it, it, one of the things that we've advocated for is a voucher system where um, a key principle is that the money follow the student. It go to parents rather than a bureaucracy. Um, do, you, do you think that would ever happen in Canada from your perspective? Uh, like the system in Sweden comes to mind where you have schools basically competing with each other to meet the needs of the children rather than just simply having a kind of a public monopoly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's true in education as it is in any field that monopolies tend not to be very high performing. Um, and uh so there's, and I don't, I don't necessarily like using the language of competition because that, mm-hmm. that just, I think it, it has some negative connotations when you're talking about education, okay. but, but it's very true. Um, having choice in education drives everyone to become better, to be um, more responsive to what families mm-hmm. are looking for, more exactly. accountable for their, for the education that they're delivering. Um, so something like a voucher system would be interesting. Now, there's all sorts of pitfalls in how it's designed um, that could make it go awry. Um, so there's, I think, many, many ways to do that badly. 
but Alberta already has a kind of almost quasi voucher system because Alberta does fund students, at least a portion of funding follows them, whether they're in private or independent schools, um, separate schools, uh, even homeschooling families receive some provincial funding. Um, and we have charter schools. So uh, it's not the same amount across each of these systems that children are getting, but um, but it is kind of working toward that model where there is meaningful choice for families. Exactly. And I, I like that theme that um, it's about empowering parents to make choices. So speaking of parents, it's back to school time as we look to um, the new year. Um, when you look as a, a leader in education, are there key points of advice that you'd offer parents as they go back into the school system? Is there something right off the hand? I know that we're going to get into much more detail here, but um, off the top, are there key points of advice for parents as they look back to going back to school? Yeah, well, um, you know, I was trying to think about how would you know as a parent if you're sort of walking around a school, you're on a tour, you're, you know, visiting your, if you're volunteering in your child's class one day, what are some of the things that you might look for that are mm -hmm. potential indicators? Um, one, I think really important thing is what is, what can you learn about the culture of the school? And so much of that I think can be gleaned from, well, what does it sound like inside the school? Mm. Um, you know, are, do children have clear and a clear understanding of the rules of what is expected to, of them, of what they do in this place? And that could be even very granular things like, how do they walk down the hall? Do they walk in silence in cues? Do they walk on the right side of the hall or are they all over the place? Are they running? Are they shouting? Are there clear, clearly communicated rules about what kind of behavior is considered acceptable? Do the children understand those and are they enforced clearly and consistently? So, um, you know, at our school, I think one of the ideals that we try to work towards is we want our hallways to feel calm. Mm. And so the children understand that they should cue, that they should be silent in the hallways, um, that they should be respectful. Uh, so if they see an adult, a lot of them will say, you know, good morning, how are you? Um, and so I would look for sort of subtle indicators like that. How does it actually feel? What is the kind of oral experience in the school? Um, another I, I, a similar thing is, well, what, how are the hallways and the classrooms adorned? Are they sort of cluttered, messy? Do they have lots of sort of posters up? Um, or is there something else? Are they trying to uplift people? Are they trying to create an aesthetic environment uh -huh. that is also, you know, that's pleasing somehow? Um, do they let parents into the school? And now all schools need to place limits on you can't have parents sort of wandering through classes uh, haphazardly. But, you know, if you asked for a school tour, would you be able to get it? Would you, is there transparency in terms of what your children are learning? Uh, are there opportunities to volunteer and to go into the classroom in that capacity? Um, and I think that's telling. I, I wouldn't really trust a school that is unwilling to let parents say, go on a tour, for example, hmm. um, and step into classrooms in a structured uh, uh, environment and, and see what, well, what are these classrooms like? Um, in the classrooms, I would say, are teachers actually teaching? Are they standing at the front of the class and delivering lessons? And again, if you haven't been in a school in a long time, that might sound like a silly question, but a lot of relatively new graduates of education faculties, um, I've had some people tell me that they were instructed in their education programs that they should never be caught at the front of a class delivering a lesson. Uh, why, why would that be? 
Well, this goes back to the educational philosophy of people like Paolo Freire, who's mm -hmm. profoundly influential, one of the most influential thinkers of the 20th century, really. Right. And his book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, mm -hmm. is almost unheard of outside of education. But it's a big seller in those faculties, isn't it? Well, it's such a big seller in those faculties that mm -hmm. it is apparently the third most cited work of social science in history. So think about that. It's almost unknown outside of this context, and yet is still so widely read and cited. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and believe me, you really need to read it to believe it. Um, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, and one of the ideas that Freire developed was, this is probably what he's most known for, but I don't even think it's the worst of him. Mm -hmm is he, he said he developed this idea, a kind of false dichotomy. He said that most traditional education is a, is a banking model of education, where the teacher is making deposits of knowledge into the minds of passive students. And this is, well, I mean, one, I think this is a kind of false premise. Mm -hmm. um, teachers are obviously teaching content and teaching knowledge and imparting knowledge to students. But the idea that students are sort of empty-minded, vacant, receptive vessels into which things are being passively deposited, that seems like nonsense to me. And I've never met a teacher who thinks that way. Right. Um, but he, he set this up as this kind of straw man. This is the banking model of education. Mm -hmm. We should be aimed at a kind of liberationist model of education where the teacher is no longer presuming to know things that students don't. Because that's a hierarchical relationship, and any hierarchical relationship in this way of thinking is necessarily oppressive. It's a relationship of domination, mm. and it should be leveled. So these hierarchies should be leveled. Teachers should not be trying to teach specific knowledge because that's oppressive. They should rather be co-constructing meaning with their students on a more equal footing and sort of facilitating the process of meaning making. Mm -hmm. So there's a sort of vaguely kind of Rousseauian overtones to yeah. this project as well. So th this is kind of maybe hard to understand or comprehend if you're, if you're not familiar with these um, uh, hallways or, or places of, of, of absurd thinking. It, <laughs> it's often seen through the lens of victim and oppressor, right? And so you, you have a situation, Kaelin, where Teachers and I, I, you know, there's many good teachers, uh, but they're they're being led through their faculty of education, and and this is obviously my opinion, where a lot of the curriculum is just simply tripe. It's 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 utter nonsense, um, as they teach um, uh, a philosophy of education which does not serve the student, let alone the parents or society. No, absolutely. This world of um, strange ideologies, and I would call them really toxic thinking, it's always seen through this Marxist lens of victim versus oppressor, really isn't about serving the student, um, let alone parents and society. So, it, it, you know, in that world, how do parents make sense of it that they're getting, uh, their children are getting a high quality um, education? Like, so um, do things like tests matter? Do standards matter in your, in your world? Yeah, well, I, I absolutely. Um, now, our specific approach to testing and to grades uh, is that we don't want to just be focused on sort of teaching to the test and having students be kind of grade sharks, mm -hmm. right? So like our report cards, actually, the first couple pages of our report cards are focused on the student's cultivation of moral virtues 
and intellectual virtues, and then we get into sort of specific academic performance. Oh, interesting. So what do you um, mean by moral virtues as an example? Well, so things like like fortitude, mm. um, you know, is this a, or is this a person or intellectual virtues? Is this a student who is willing to take intellectual risks? Is Are they willing to be wrong for the sake of getting closer to the truth, for example? Wow. Um, that almost so, sounds revolutionary today. Yeah. And so, you know, things like looking at what is, well, what is the depth of their inquiry? Are they asking questions in order to de- more deeply understand a question or do they just want to ask a question so they know what to write on the test, mm. right? Um, so, you know, we, we're trying to promote that, but absolutely standards matter. And I think high standards matter. Uh, you know, there's a lot of teacher, there's, you'll see sometimes these movements to eradicate um, standardized testing, uh, to eradicate merit, merit-based programs. Uh-huh. Because when you do standardized testing uh, or when you have merit-based programs, a natural differentiation occurs. Mm-hmm. I won't say a hierarchy because I, um, you know, your performance academically doesn't necessarily say much more about you as a person, but, mm-hmm. but a hierarchy, at least along those academic planes, develops. And if you're the kind of person who believes that hierarchies are necessarily malevolent and evil and need mm-hmm. to be leveled, mm. well, one solution is... Well, let's get rid of the things that reveal them. Let's get rid of the tests, get rid of the standards. Exactly. Um, and and it's also, I think, a way of escaping accountability mm-hmm. for an, a, you know, a curricular approach and a pedagogical approach that is failing kids. Okay. So, but I, I think that gives a great insight then for parents or, or grandparents, whoever you are as a citizen, to understand this kind of profound divide not just philosophically, but how that translates into the classroom. You don't have tests because, well, you don't believe in somehow differentiating excellence or, or hard work from someone else who doesn't necessarily uh, believe that. That's right. And excellence is the word. I think, um, you know, this is very much a worldview that says we should be aiming at producing equality, not excellence. Exactly. And- so, so that's something that as a parent, you really want to keep your ear attuned to. Yeah. And and I think another kind of related in that category is in relation to discipline and classroom management. Mm. And uh, and again, you know, I go back to to Freire, to pedagogy of the oppressed, um, his idea that it is oppressive for this idea that the teacher teaches and the student is taught is oppressive. So, too, is the idea the teacher disciplines and the student is disciplined. What so the heck? why would that be seen as oppressive, Kalon? <laughs> because um, students are adapting themselves to the teacher's designs and will, and the teacher is above them and is the one imparting knowledge and discipline, and that is habituating or sort of um, acclimatizing the student to be dominated, to be oppressed. Mm-hmm. And so you need to get rid of these hierarchies. And so you can imagine um, saying that knowledge is oppressive is one thing. Saying that discipline is oppressive <laughs> has another sort of... Um, tragic set of consequences, which is you just get chaos in classrooms. And there's no, there's no peace. There's no, um, you know, it's like, look, I, I had a parent recently. Um, this is from a fairly affluent community, you know, good community, intact families, no kind of major sort of social pathologies afflicting these types of communities. And they said that their daughter, um, who's seven years old, had to wear headphones every day to drown out the chaos and the noise in the classroom, just if they wanted to concentrate. And because there was this teacher who I'm sure was a well-meaning teacher Mm -hmm. and taught that you can't discipline kids. You can't impose order. 
uh, because that would be oppressive. And so you sort of have to let your classrooms be a kind of zoo. And um, it's this idea that, again, I alluded earlier in our conversation to the distorted idea of freedom. So I think there are some people who think that if students are learning specific knowledge that is dictated by a curriculum or the teacher's deciding what's being taught, um, that that is hindering the freedom and the expression of the student. Similarly, if the student is being asked to behave in a particular way or to wear a uniform or to, um, you know, to walk straight or to stand straight or to walk through the halls in a particular way, all of this is oppressive. It's, it's encumbering their freedom to express themselves. And this isn't, but this is very different from how I understand freedom and how um, sort of in, in the classical tradition, freedom is understood. Freedom isn't being able, it's not t equivalent to license. It's not doing whatever your whims tell you to do. Freedom is actually governing yourself and it's acquiring the habits and the virtues that allow you to exercise self-control, discipline, temperance, so that you do not need external constraints because you are able to place them on your own appetites internally. Mm -hmm. And so it's a totally different view of what freedom means, what liberation means. And, um, and obviously these are, these are opposed to each other. So I think as a parent going into a classroom, I would be kind of on the lookout. Is there good classroom management? Do the students know what's mm -hmm. expected of them? Do they adhere to sort of rituals or rules or customs? Um, is the teacher at the front of the class? Are they actually trying to achieve certain knowledge outcomes um, in a sort of orderly structured way? I think this is what I would be looking for as evidence of a good school. Very good. So I like that you're challenging us, uh, all parents, all citizens, to not assume you know what's going on in the classroom, to be really engaged and to keep your eyes open and your ears open as well, and to ask questions. Is that a fair comment? Oh, absolutely. No. And that's not to, you know, and I, I don't say that to undermine teachers. No, it's uh, just the opposite. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, teachers, uh, in all fairness to them, as a profession, are kind of caught in the middle, aren't they? I think um, my mother was a teacher, a librarian, and I have met so many teachers in our larger family and, and you know, community. They care deeply about children, but they're, they're also being led by um, an ideological movement and a, a, a bureaucracy that yeah. doesn't necessarily have the same ends in mind. Is that a fair That's, comment? Oh, absolutely. Um, and again, I, I've heard a lot of stories from teachers, uh, both at our school and elsewhere, that I, I, mean, I, I remember hearing one story from a teacher who said that she had become afraid to teach Aristotle in class because she was no longer confident that a student wouldn't be secretly recording it and um, complain that they were offended. And she was not sure that the administration would have her back. So she was sort of walking on eggshells to teach Aristotle. Oh, for um, that's utter tripe. Yeah. Well, yeah. and so a lot of it, I think there is this dimension of there are good teachers who um, are attuned to the practical realities of teaching, of what makes mm -hmm. a good teacher, of what makes an effective lesson plan, mm -hmm. um, but feel constrained by the expectations of whether it's the administration or whether it's just sort of the culture that they inhabit, that they feel there's certain things they have to do or cannot do, that their instincts and experience tells them they ought to be doing. Wow, well said. So I did wanna look at uh, the bigger picture on education. Uh, we've talked a lot about uh, looking at your school through um, a, a critical lens, a thinking lens uh, for the, the sake of your children. 
If we look at the larger challenges of education, is there an easy answer to saying where we're at as a country? Well, we've lost the understanding of the, the telos of the purpose or the ends of education. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is, I, I think you characterize it as an ideological war. I, I might even call it a spiritual war is, mm-hmm. a, is sort of playing out between um, some very different irreconcilable views of what this is for. And, um, you know, I, I, I think one of, one of the ways that we could approach this is what is it? What does it mean to educate citizens? Um, and I think there are some people who would kind of look quixotically at you if you raise that question. Um, you know, but like, let's take the question of what is what should civics education look like? Uh-huh. Do we want to produce people who know about the history of their country and are proud of it? Um, or do we want to produce people who are sort of unshackled from the burdens of historical knowledge mm-hmm. or who look back on the past as something to be repudiated and dismantled so as to create room for a new world? And exactly. you can't reconcile these two things. So you need to pick one. And we're not in a, I think, I don't think we're doing a very good job nationwide. So in, in many ways, Kaelin, you're really bringing or shedding a light on the reality that we're not, we're not coming necessarily from the same worldview. Uh, and, and this kind of helps explain the differences or debates in education from a larger picture. So if you don't really believe in our traditions of liberty or kind of democratic decision-making, then you'll be advocating for something different that may not be democratic. Is that a fair comment? Um, yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely true. Um, Again, I, I think there's great wisdom in our inherited customs, norms, prejudices. I say prejudices again in the positive, not the negative sense. Mm-hmm. Um, now that wisdom is not absolute. It's not, it can't, it's not that it can't be changed or shouldn't sometimes be changed as circumstances mm-hmm. um, are, you know, evolve. But, um, but there's a great deal of wisdom in the past. And there's, there's something incredibly wonderful about being able to partake of the great conversation mm-hmm. um, and to see where we come from and to recognize the incredible fragility of civilization. Yeah. I mean, this is something that our students starting in kindergarten start to learn when they learn about sort of the earliest civilizations and the transition from a nomadic to a sedentary society is how incredibly complex it is, how rare it is to, to actually achieve sort of peace um, and a relatively just society. Um, and, and I think we want people to approach that with gratitude. Exactly. And I think a lot of students are not getting that. I, I think that's a, a great summary of, in many ways, the incredible responsibility of educators to pass on that inheritance of really civilization and how we can live together peacefully in a tolerant way, learn about the truth, have open discussion and healthy debate. That is a gift of civilization that we're passing to the next generation through education, no less. That's extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, There's. I think there's one way to summarize the conflict divisions here is the people who think education is about producing agents of change Whereas to me, it's about producing fit stewards of a civilizational inheritance. Well said. So let's dive a little bit deeper then when we talk about education being so-called agents of change. Um, 
often we summarize this in the form of words like wokeism, um, this kind of uh, hyper political correctness with, I would refer edges of totalitarianism, where you have people advocating things like diversity, equity, inclusion, reconciliation. I mean, the list goes on and on. Surely you're not against these things, Kalen. Like what, how do you put that into perspective? Because that's why you have the symptoms of that way of thinking, that ideology, and, and, and this is a question, believe it or not, that's why you see so-called drag queen hours or strange books that may be sexualizing children, like e.g. minors, um, or you celebrate pride month, not just a day, or, you know, obviously we want to welcome everyone, but that's, this is not exactly what we're talking about. Or how do you put this into perspective, Kaelin? There's a, I think you, there's a few threads there in what you just said, how to put this in perspective. Um, wait, wait, I mean, first you mentioned pride month. Um, I don't, it's not a coincidence that pride month falls in June and that so many schools celebrate it for the entire month, because I think by that time teachers are tired mm. and, um, I think it's an excuse to check out a little bit in some cases. Hmm. Um, so, and, and to me, and this is something that one of our teachers raised and he's, he's said, who's quite, you know, publicly and open about the fact that he's gay. And he said, this is ridiculous. Just think of the opportunity costs. Um, you could be teaching real lessons. You know, they covered an entire 500 year span of history in the month of, of June. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, that, that's one angle is just, there's tremendous opportunity costs. You have one of the, I think one of the biggest challenges as a, that school leaders face is how do you achieve all of the curricular outcomes that you want to hit in a very limited span of time? Um, you know, in like 180 days and really only, you know, six ish instructional hours per day when you factor in lunch and recess and yeah. everything. Every it's day really, is precious, isn't it? It's, oh, every minute is precious. I mean, I think a good school is one that has figured out how to get their routines down so that transitions mm -hmm. are as fast as possible because you actually, you really, time is your is your most scarce resource. And yeah, you think about the opportunity costs when you're wasting that time. Um, okay, so, so, so here's the thought, Kaylin. To what extent, and I know that it's hard to generalize, but certainly in conversations with a variety of education leaders, we see an interesting dichotomy. We see people that are ideologically all in on this diversity, equity, inclusion agenda. That's, that's one area. But there's another agenda going on, and that is that this kind of wokeism, uh, this uh, uh, ceaseless bowing down to the um, diversity agenda is really about covering the um, for weak performing schools, schools that are really not performing well on the ABCs. And this is really cover for them. Do you think there's some truth to that? Um, in certain contexts, I think that that makes sense to me. Um, and it's not a it's not a hypothesis that I had really um, considered very much before, but it certainly seems plausible mm -hmm. that um, if you focus on these things, uh, yeah, that it can distract from failures that are occurring uh, in your school academically. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if you really go all in on it, then you get to the point where we were that we were discussing earlier, which is, you can start obliterating standards, evaluations, tests, 
in order to cover for those failures in the name. And you do that in the name of equity. You say, look, there's group level disparities in how Asian children are performing as opposed Mm -hmm. to Hispanic children. So that's, you know, prima facie evidence of discrimination or racism. So we need to eliminate the test. Exactly. And and I think that's that's something worth exploring as well, is that many of these programs um, that purport to be about improving people's condition, about sort of freeing them from a state of being oppressed, um, they do the opposite in practice. Um, You know, what happens in practice when you eliminate, let's say, standardized testing is that you close off the avenues for high achieving but low socioeconomic students Mm -hmm. to escape from uh, from that low socioeconomic position, right? So um, what happens when you tell students constantly that they are either the oppressor or that they are oppressed by dint of their race? Mm-hmm. You do not improve their their conditions materially or spiritually. Mm-hmm. Um, you make them much more attuned to grievance, um, attuned to the possibility of slights, even where none are intended. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is actually a very an immensely painful way to live. And I, I think it bears mentioning that this idea of microaggressions originated in education faculties. Um, Sorry, what is a microaggression? Can't so <laughs> I mean, I'm not even sure that I. Can I hope I didn't it. offend you by asking you what well, is microaggression. <laughs> so microaggressions would be sort of, you know, where a person is not is probably not intending anything offensive, nefarious, mean, uh, but the other party nonetheless feels somehow slighted. Hmm. And so the idea of microaggressions, which has been promoted emanating from education faculties, and now it's kind of everywhere, um, is that you should be on, I mean, I think it promotes a victim mindset that you are constantly being assaulted in almost invisible, very minor ways. Mm And this is a terrible thing to do to people. But, but what's because, an example, Kaelin? I, I'm not sure if I've well, an example, like, I mean, the standard example is, if I would ask you where you're from, that's a microaggression. Um, not just your town, but you may be from another country originally. Well, that's that would be the implication. So okay. particularly that question directed at someone who's sort of, uh, you know, might belong to an ethnic minority, for example, that would be a microaggression mm-hmm. because it might imply that you are not from here no. and that might imply that you do not belong here. And, you know, there's all sorts of various inferences that mm-hmm. could in the worst faith interpretation be read into the question. Yeah. And so it's a microaggression. Whereas I would have seen, or probably you and I would have grown up with the tradition that that was a sign of respect to your other culture by asking, where are you from? And yeah, or, or just learning. normal interest in a person. Yeah, right? in good Canadian fashion, learning more about your story. Um, yeah. So, no, no, it's fascinating how that it's almost has a cynical, hate-filled bent, always taking something and twisting it and seeing the negative in it. Well, it's consistently choosing the least charitable interpretation mm-hmm. of everything and yeah. of uh, choosing the most a kind of, you know, ill spirit, mean-spirited uh, way of reading other people's motives. Wow. Uh, but again... I, I'm saying it's. I'm not saying it's hurtful to the people who are being accused of mm-hmm. microaggressions. I'm saying right. it's hurtful to the person who is being taught to view the world as I am constantly under siege by microaggressions. I'm a victim. I have no agency because I belong to an oppressed class. This is a this is a terribly cruel thing to do to people. Exactly, um, and it, it harms their their physical health, their, their mental health, their relationships, their mm-hmm. sense of belonging to a society. So it, that is an oppressive thing to do. 
And, and that is what's being done in the name of equity and inclusion. Wow. What a, what a terrible thing to, to do to people. So when you look at your school, do you have uh, drag queens enter your school? Do you have books that uh, talk about uh, graphic sex with minors? <laughs> How do you handle that issue? And are you oh. welcoming school? Of course, we're a welcoming school. We try to provide the best education to every member of our community. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we have standards for the kind of literature that passes through our doors, that it should be of aesthetic, moral, literary, and informational value. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we believe that parents are the first educators of their children. We're not going to keep secrets from parents about what their children are learning in school. Now, what do you, what do you mean by that, Kellen? Well, I, I mean that many schools have, um, well, that one, they're not transparent about the curriculum they teach. Um, there is a, there's a statutory obligation, certainly in Alberta, and I assume in most provinces, for example, that when students are going to be learning about sex, human sexuality or religion, at least not in a kind of non-incidental way, that, that teachers uh, need to inform parents. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of schools are not doing that. And partly it's because they consider, again, I'm speaking in very broad generalizations, mm -hmm. partly it's because they consider that material about um, sort of, you know, sexual orientation and um, identity, gender identity, mm -hmm. they don't consider that to be about human sexuality and so not necessarily subject to those statutory requirements. They consider this to be, some of the language I saw recently out of Ontario was they consider this to be teaching about human rights and no one should have the ability to opt out of learning about human rights, we wouldn't we wouldn't frame it that way. Um, we would say that this is that would very much be fall under the the remit of teaching okay. about but the facts are these are children, they're minors. Yes. Parents should be in charge, yeah. and that overrides everything, shouldn't it? Yeah, and I mean, if if we were teaching something that we were ashamed to have parents know about, I would say that's a huge problem. Um, like we would never teach anything that we, if, if we were concerned that we would get in trouble with parents for teaching it. Okay. But to be right. clear in many schools, and I've heard this from parents, they are basically punted out of what yep. they know what's going on in the classroom when it comes to the teaching of some pretty graphic sexual stuff. And these are their kids, they're minors. That's the parent's job to talk to them, not the school. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, we, we could get into in some depth, um, I could speak in a personal capacity about my views on uh, some of the specific mm -hmm. content. I had a, I spoke to a parent recently who was concerned that uh, their daughter was sort of coming home, you know, early elementary, was coming home and very confused about whether she could turn into a boy. Um, because she didn't necessarily conform perfectly to sort of traditionally feminine gender stereotypes. And does that mean she's a boy? And is she going to turn into a boy? And the parent asked the school about this and said, what's going on? What are you teaching? And the parent was basically told not to enter the school anymore and not to contact the teacher. Wow. Um, so, you know, again, I, th I think these are, these are isolated anecdotes, but the problem is, how do you trust that your school is not one of these schools? Exactly. So, so in that case, Kaelin, when the rubber hits the road, what would be the advice then to that parent? Is it not get the get yeah, your get child out. out of that school? Yeah, I would. I, I would absolutely say that. And and if you can't, 
then make sure that you're talking to them actively about what they're learning and make sure that you have, you know, sort of a, a very strong relationship that you are doing the work of trying to fill in the gaps, the knowledge gaps that are occurring, and that you're also sort of teaching them, well, what are the criteria by which we can reason and judge clearly? And, um, you know, it's, uh, I think I, I read The Emperor's New Clothes with my daughter for the first time when she was six, and it really stuck with her. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, this idea that actually sometimes just because everyone says something is true doesn't necessarily make it true. That's a lesson that I didn't want to have to impart at a young age, but um, but I think it is one. That, All right. That so we have th to this is a, a very profound uh, part of our fairy tale curriculum growing up, uh, Kalen. But can you remind us for those people that forget the great story of Hans Christian Andersen? What was the story? The emperor had no clothes. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Um, and like, so I, I was familiar with this general idea throughout my life, but I'd never actually read the original story until okay. uh, the last couple of years. It's so good. Um, even reading it as an adult, it's sort of hilarious and has just great insight into the human condition. But the idea is that there is a sort of rather vain emperor and a couple swindlers come to town and basically say that they're going to make him some new clothes and it's made of a sort of very special cloth right. that is invisible to people who are, I forget what the criteria are, but um, it's invisible basically to sort of people of low quality. Mm -hmm. This cloth can only be seen by people of higher quality mm -hmm. and, um, and is sort of extremely ornate and elaborate. And, um, you know, they make the new clothes for the emperor at very great expense to the country and uh, and the emperor then, but and no one is willing to say that they cannot see the cloth, because that would give themselves as a way as a person of sort of lower quality. Um, they all buy into the lie. Well, they buy into the lie. They're afraid to admit mm -hmm. uh, that they can't see it, and because they act like they see it, other people see them acting mm -hmm. like they see it, and say, "Well, everyone around me seems to see it, so I better pretend that I see it as well." Mm -hmm. um, and eventually the emperor goes parading through the streets naked until finally a child is willing to say, the child who is sort of not so concerned about social belonging or fitting in or approbation or being humiliated, a child finally is the one who says, but he's, he's got no clothes. Um, now the ending of this story, I question if it's realistic because in the Hans Christian Andersen version, version the child being able to say he has no clothes is the thing that gives other people permission to say, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, he doesn't have clothes. In reality, I wonder if the child would have been scapegoated and like, you know, ritually um, murdered or something. Mm -hmm. But, um, but uh, so my daughter, when I asked her once, what character from literature do you most identify with personally? And she told me, you remember the kid from the emperor's new clothes? I'm, I want to be like that kid. <laughs> wow. So let that be a lesson to all of us that we need to be very discerning and to be able to think clearly about these issues. And sometimes it's not easy when you have the peer pressure, if you will, of, of society. It's not always easy. Oh, absolutely not. But yes, be willing to be that child, even if uh, you believe my reading that maybe he would have been sacrificed and scapegoated. It's also possible that by being willing to say, no, I believe this to be true. Mm -hmm what you're teaching is ridiculous and nonsensical. And, um, you know, if enough people are willing to say that, it can give permission to others to say, yeah, you know what, this is ridiculous. Right. What we're doing. Maybe we should change that something. How do you think parents should get involved in their school? Is there an easy answer to that? Well, I, th I think there are several ways. And it, wh what I would say, try not to do is 
you know, don't necessarily treat the teachers as, or the administrators as an enemy, right? Um, ass don't assume bad faith or assume that they're doing the worst or sort of feel that they need to be kind of spied on and checked in on, but be actively involved. Um, you know, do homework with your children, ask them what they're learning about. Um, go to parent-teacher conferences, volunteer in the classroom if you have the ability to do that, ask for a tour of the school um, so that you can kind of see what the classroom environment is like. So I, I think those are all excellent things. I certainly be in contact with your school trustee, um, with your elected representatives, with the, you know, uh, and make sure that your voice is heard there as well. Um, you know, it's funny, I, charter schools are sometimes accused of not being accountable because we don't have elected boards of trustees, though many charter schools do have elected boards, but elected by their parents. Um, and to which my answer is, how many people in the world do you think know the name of their school board trustee? Um, and do you really think that if you went with complaints to that person, that they would be sort of seized of it immediately and be on the problem? Um, so it, it's not necessarily uh, something that would be immediate, but I think, you know, a chorus of voices eventually can make an impact and, uh, and, and individuals, if you speak up, if you're strategic about it, can absolutely make an impact. Kalen Ford, you're an outstanding leader in education. I want to thank you so much for this far-reaching conversation today. And thank you so much for your wisdom and your insight and your courage. And uh, we wish you every success. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.